0: Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. We're spending January 2022 uh, each Sunday asking the question what is a disciple of Jesus and these talks they'll hopefully encourage us all to take hold of Jesus' call to be his disciples and I guess that will happen in in many different ways but at the same time we're using these talks to launch a specific way of discipleship which is a new program we're going to be running through our community groups uh, starting in February and that will be uh, basically a series of discipleship groups. Now I guess for those of you in community groups, you'll have heard about this a little bit already uh, and I'm sure your community group leaders have, have communicated to you uh, the important fact about these discipleship groups, which is that they're by no means obligatory. Um, you will not be kicked out of your community group if you don't want to be in a discipleship group. And um, I just want to recognise the discipleship groups that we're going to launch, that they're not going to work for everybody. Um, we all work out our discipleship of Jesus in, in different ways and this might not be the thing that helps you the most at the moment and if that's the case, absolutely fine. But But if you would like to get involved in a discipleship group and and hearing back from a number of people, it seems that this is scratching where you're itching uh, at the moment. Uh, Could I ask just that you please get back to your community group leaders as soon as you can. We are hoping to launch the discipleship groups across the church at the beginning of February after next week's talk where Rich will be finishing off uh, this series on discipleship. If you're not in a, a community group um well now's your chance and yet another reason uh, to join one of our excellent community groups uh, and if you'd like to get involved with that get hold of the office and we will sort you out now what's going to happen in these discipleship groups then well um the the actual content at least for the start is going to be based around encouraging each of us to live out jesus's two priority teachings his the the, the instructions he put right at the very top to love god and to love our neighbours. And we started looking at these last week, we looked at Love God last week, and this week, predictably, we're looking at Love Your Neighbour. And we're going to return to the passage that we looked at last time to do this, and that's found in Matthew chapter 22. Now, to get our heads back in the game, I'm not just going to dive halfway into the passage and just pick up the last bit. Let's go back to the start, and hopefully that will bring us all up to speed, but also... I hope it will set the context and show the emphasis that Jesus puts on this second instruction to love our neighbour. So I'm going to read starting from verse 34 in Matthew 22. This is what it says. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? So this question that we started looking at last week, which is the most important commandment? I I think I said last time, I'm really glad this is in the Bible. I'm really glad this guy asked this question because of Jesus's answer. But actually, it wasn't an innocent inquiry. It was meant as a trap. They they were trying to trick Jesus to say something stupid and basically get himself cancelled. And uh, in the chapter before, we'd seen them try a couple of different uh, different ways. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were religious leaders at the time, and neither of those things had worked. So they go for this, the last one. Uh, they thought the others haven't worked. Let's trap him with this. And this is the question they choose. And many of us would know where this is going, um, so we just brush on. But I just want to pause here for a second and just ask the question: Well, how is this a trap? What, what is it they were expecting Jesus to say that would have made them all go? Yes, there we go. We've got him. Uh, he's completely discredited. Were they hoping he'd choose a very niche uh, in commandment from the law of Moses um, and then look a little bit fringe? Were they hoping to go even further and, and Jesus say something like law of Moses? That's so 1000 BC. We, we should need to move into the present. Forget the law of Moses. And so he gets completely struck off. Well, whatever they were expecting, this is the answer they received. Verse thirty-seven. Jesus replied, "You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment." So, what do we make of this answer then? Well, I think the first thing we've got to understand is he's got it right. He has answered with the correct answer, and that would have been the case from uh, for his li- for his listeners, but also the people asking the question. Jesus very, very clearly passed the test they set him. And we know that because this verse he's quoting here is is a verse from the Old Testament. So it's in the scriptures, it's a verse from the Torah, which would to be very important to the religious leaders. But not just that. This is a very special verse. The verse Jesus quotes from, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, is found in Deuteronomy 4, uh, verses 5 to 6. And that's a passage that's so important, it gets a fancy name. And that name is the Shema. And the Shema would have been what they would call, observant Jews would have called it then. And still today, it would be a very important passage of scripture for observant Jews. And this passage was so important that, that they would write it on a uh, piece of paper and put those pieces of paper on bo- in bo- little boxes And some of those boxes would be put close to people's heart when they prayed. Some would be put close to their mind in boxes that were strapped to their head while they prayed. And other boxes were put attached permanently to the doorposts of people's houses. So whenever they left or entered their house, they would remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your mind. Jesus is basically quoting back the Pharisees absolute favorite verse at them he nails this test he passes it with flying colors and so at this point you you Jesus would have been justified to do like the first uh, first century um, equivalent of a mic drop at this point he say it and just kind of drop the mic walk straight off and confound his critics but he doesn't does he he goes on I read from verse 39 a second is equally important love your neighbor as yourself The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So what's going on here then? Well, the first thing to know again is Jesus isn't going off peace, He's not going for some random law. Uh, No, this is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. And this is seen as a, a very important verse. It's from Leviticus 19, verse 18. But the bigger question we've got to ask is, well, why does Jesus bother throwing this into the mix at all? Let's remember, he was asked to give his number one, wasn't he? What is the greatest commandment? Why did he add a second one in? I think what's happening here is there's so often with Jesus. Jesus is turning the tables on his opposition. And having met their challenge, he's offering them a challenge too. You see, these people, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, that they were people who thought they'd signed up fully to the loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength thing. That, that was a kind of their motto. They'd have had that on a t-shirt, on a mug. That was their slogan. But as we know from the Gospels, while they thought that verse was great, they were not living that out in a way that God was happy with. They'd understood what I talked about last week. And if they were here last week, they probably would have agreed to the point where I said that loving God means following His commandments. They would have agreed with that. And they looked like they'd become really, really good at that, at following the commandments, at following the rules. But the problem was they completely missed the spirit of those commandments. They come to treat God's commands as this sort of set of hoops that you needed to jump through. These arbitrary instructions that had no real intrinsic meaning or purpose. They were just kind of these rules God had set for one reason or another that, that, that functioned as weird tests from God himself for us to pass to prove our devotion to him. But that's not how God's commands work for us at all. There's a logic and a purpose behind God's commandments, and it comes from a deep and profound love for human beings. The Bible presents us as the pinnacle of God's creation. It presents us as those that that, that God chose to breathe his life into in a special way, breathing into humans in in a special way, different from how he breathed into, say, horses or pigs or worms or birds. No, no, humans were made in the very image of God himself. And he cares for every one of us. He values us hugely. He loves us. And so one way he expresses that love is to give us instructions that if followed will do good for all of us. It will lead to flourishing societies. It will lead to healthy communities. It will lead to contented, joyful human lives. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's making this explicit by adding this second command in to act as a sort of commentary on the first one. Now, that is the way he subtly challenges his uh, questioners with what he says. I don't know if you missed it, but at the beginning uh, of verse 39, a second is equally important. I wonder what the response to that was. A second is equally important. What? Equally important to loving God with all your heart, soul and mind. Equally important to the Shema. Yes. Other translations put it like this. A second is just like it. I've always seen this passage um, as Jesus kind of handing out the runner's up medal as regards commandments. Number one, we have love the Lord your God with all your heart. And we're a bit further behind, but still uh, uh, worthy of a mention. We have love your neighbours yourself. I don't think that's what jesus is getting at here i think jesus is in a sense restating the greatest commandment to love god but giving it from a slightly different angle think about it this, what he's saying is is quite challenging it's profound it's controversial even jesus is saying that loving people is just like loving god or to put it another way if we don't love people we're not really loving god the apostle paul underlines this when he writes to the Christians in Rome uh, years later. Romans thirteen eight to 10 says this owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. Now, before we get practical with all this, I probably need to say one more thing uh, so we understand what Jesus and Paul are not saying here. They are not saying that love your neighbour as yourself now annuls all of God's other commandments. No, no, that's not what they're saying. No, love your neighbour as yourself sums up the other laws and teachings. It doesn't wipe them away. And the reason I say this is because many people have tried to read that line of thinking into Jesus's teachings over the years. And I guess the thought is, well, it's very hard to know which of the teachings in the Bible apply to us. society's moved on quite a lot. And therefore, well, let's just get rid of all of those archaic commandments. They were they were come up with thousands of years ago after all. And we'll just put this one in. The only thing you need to do is love your neighbor. As long as you do that, you're doing the right thing. Of course, the problem with that is that that makes all of ethics and all of morality and all of uh, living our lives right become completely subjective. As if you do that, you become the final judge of what is loving or what is not loving. The basic problem that we all have is that we don't know what is truly best for others. So we don't know how to love them properly. So the other laws of scripture, the wisdom contained in the Bible, is incredibly valuable to us in helping us to apply this call to love. If you've never seen this as a heading though before, over the commands of the Bible, it's something really that that revolutionises our view of those teachings. It changes the entire way we view God's instructions of how to live when we see love your neighbour as a heading above them. I mean, let me ask you for, the, for a moment, what do you think uh, of um, some commandments, some instructions that you think of that that Christians should do? Or maybe it's things you think Christians shouldn't do. I mean, it could be something you're thinking about the moment you feel convicted by God uh, that you should do or shouldn't do. It could be just things you think, oh, these are the kind of things that Christians do. Can you think of three? Now, with your three, now put above them the banner. Love your neighbors; you love yourself. Can you see how they link in? Perhaps some fit under that banner more obviously than others. Try, try Paul's list in uh, Romans 13. I think we could summarise it. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't kill anybody. Don't steal. Don't be jealous of other people's stuff. And I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that. They fit pretty neatly under love your neighbors; you love yourself. They all relate to love quite easily. But let's think of some other commandments too. I'll give you three more. Uh, observe the sabbath by making sure you take a day of rest every week a day off your your work so i think that's a way to apply that the the idea of the sabbath today well why why should we do that well at least one reason surely is because if we burn ourselves out through overwork we won't be able to do good to others like we should another one don't get drunk on wine beer and spirits would be included in in that as well Why, why shouldn't we do that according to the bible well One of the reasons, surely, and probably the main reason, is because if we do, we won't be able to serve the people around us like God wants us to. In fact, we might well lash out at them or speak carelessly and and cause harm. One more. What about this one? Don't lust uh, after anyone else. Modern equivalent of this or a modern application would be uh, associated. Don't look at pornography. Why? Is it because it's just that that grubby little thing? You you don't want to think about it. It's not proper. Is that why? Well, no. The reason is simple, because lust and pornography dehumanizes people and stops us treating them as anything more than an object for our own gratification. It actually reduces our capacity to love. The banner, love your neighbor, is over all of the commandments. God's love for people is so deep that he won't let us just define love in any way we think best. Now, he gives us some helpful small print to ensure that our efforts don't do more harm than good. But at the same time as that, we must watch out for the error the Pharisees made. We must not get lost in that small print either. Love your neighbour as yourself is the headline over all of the decisions of a disciple of Jesus. It sets the tone for how we carry out those commands and it also helps us to fill in the gaps. So we know what to do even when there's no explicit instruction in the Bible to direct us. If in doubt, love. de yourself for the good of others, even when it means making sacrifices. That's the calling of any disciple of Jesus. Which leaves us just with one more question, I think. And that's this. Well, who is my neighbour? In Luke's Gospel... Uh, He records a similar incident to the one we see in Matthew 22, where Jesus sums up the greatest command. He does it exactly the same way. And as Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. His question on that occasion follows it up straight away with, but who is my neighbor? This question I just mentioned a minute ago. And that leads to one of Jesus's most famous stories, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And to summarize that story, Jesus basically uh, defines our neighbor in terms of someone who is very different to us even actually someone who we are naturally hostile to. His point being, we should love everyone, I suppose. Now, perhaps I could just leave it there and say, right, well, who's your neighbor? Well, everyone, so love everyone, off we go. Uh, but I think that <laughs> could be a little overwhelming. So I want to end by breaking that down a little bit more to help us to practically apply this. When I think of loving my neighbor, I think of three groups who I'm called to love. And uh, that would be my household, my church and my friends outside the church who don't know Jesus. So I'll just go through them, each of those before we finish. So first of all, my household. I I live in a a house with my wife, Gemma, and our children, Isaiah, Hope and Rex. And I recognise that not everyone listening will live in a household. So this could be applied, I suppose, to your close friends or your housemates. But I will apply this primarily for the next couple of minutes to those who live in a house with their spouses and or families. Now listen, Christian love is meant to go way beyond our households but it must start in our households. There are a few things I think that are more tragic than a Christian whose eyes are so fixed on the big purposes of God out there that they neglect the people who have been entrusted especially to their care, those in their household. The Bible makes this clear. Paul in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 says this and watch out because he's he's incredibly blunt in this passage listen to what he says those who won't care for their relatives especially those in their own household have denied the true faith such people are worse than unbelievers whoa (laughs) don't mince your words Paul (laughs) tell it tell it like you mean I mean that is strong stuff that's heavy that seems that this was very important to the apostle Paul And maybe for that reason, in the rest of the New Testament, uh, you see many instructions, specific instructions for members of the household of how they should treat each other. Children are to honour and obey their parents. Parents are not to provoke or exasperate their children. Wives and husbands are to relate to each other respectfully and to love one another. Paul, Paul says in, uh, in Ephesians 5, uh, specifically talking to husbands, that their love should basically be the same love as Christ had for the church who when he gave himself up for her. It's a sacrificial love. It's a giving of yourself. That's how we love in our households. We must be aware of this as well. This call to love in our households is not a call to be insular. The call of love, as we've increasingly see in the next couple of minutes, is a call outward. Those those of us who live in households are not called to love in those households so they become insular family units who only care about themselves. No, there's to be such love in our households that everyone in the household catches the bug and our households together start to show love to others outside of those households. Love must start in our households, but it is meant to go way beyond our households. So therefore, let's take it beyond our households. First thing, who who do we love? We love our households. We also love our church as well. And this is kind of uh, uh, an easy extension of the first point because the Bible presents the church as an extension of the household. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is God's household. We're brothers and sisters. Some of us are fathers or mothers. Church is meant to be a family. And the New Testament is full of instructions about loving others in our church families. And actually, there is often a sense that we should prioritise our church families in our love. So in in 1 Peter 3.17, Peter says this. He says, respect everyone and love the family of believers. Everyone out there, respect them. But in the family of believers in your church, love them. The principle, I guess, is the same as with our natural families and household. Love starts in the family. Now, this can seem a little bit odd and a little bit of tension with uh, other things, even the ones I've mentioned, where Jesus defines love in terms of the other, the one that's not in your family, the one that's very different to you, as he did in the parable of the Good uh, Samaritan. When he's asked, who's my neighbour, he doesn't talk about a family member. He uses the example of an outsider. So how do we put these two ideas together? Well, I think one way to do it is to understand the family, whether it's church or it's uh, the nuclear family, as a training ground for love for those outside the family you see families are often the places where relationships are most intense families see a lot of each other generally families are always under each other's feet they're in each other's faces and that's especially true of family units as households but by extension it's true too of of church families as we learn to love people in the pressure of family it trains us to love those outside the family so if you're married and Uh, You wrestle with how annoying your spouse can be sometimes. You learn to forgive and uh, to to get rid of bitterness and to, 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 to turn those arguments around and to keep on loving each other. Well, that trains you to love others outside of the home too. As we all kind of wrestle, I suppose, with the quirks and foibles of our brothers and sisters at church, for whom often we're thrown together uh, without choosing. So we kind of, uh, in our community groups each week or uh, serving alongside them in different church stuff. Well, as we do that, again, it trains us to love those outside the church. Because as I've been saying all along and alluding to, where this is ultimately heading is outside the household, is outside the church, to people who are not like us, who are not in our gang, to people who aren't in our faces all the time. In fact, people who actually have left our own devices, we could just leave them to themselves. They can just get on with it. We'll just do our thing. That's fine. But that's not how God wants us to operate. No, he wants us to love them. An active love, not just to tolerate, not just to leave them, not to leave them at all, actually, but to go out to love them. So let's move to the last thing then. Uh, we're also called to love people outside of our churches who aren't Christians. Our view of love as Christians, is, is to be modelled on God's self-sacrificial giving of his son for a race of people who were, who were living at an incredible distance to him, who'd alienated themselves from him, who'd become separated from him. Christian love may start in the family, but for that love to be truly Christian, it must be a love for the other in the fullest sense of the word. Now you want to might might want to apply this further than i'm going to but the least i think this means is that we should look to love those outside of the church who aren't christians now some of you might see where this is going right now and you might might think oh i know how this is going to end we we started with love and now we're landing on people outside the church who aren't christians And what Johnny's likely to say is something like, well, the the best good that we can do for people outside the church, the best way we can love them is to introduce them to Jesus and therefore uh, love equals evangelism. Preach the gospel, you know, invite people along uh, to things, pray for the sick and and that sort of stuff. Actually, I'm not going to land there in this talk. I'll be honest, I... I do agree that the greatest good we can do for someone is to introduce them to Jesus. I I believe that. To make disciples of all nations, as Jesus put it. But I'm not going to end that way. You see, Jesus did call us to make disciples, that's for sure. But I think there is a real danger that we can jump to making disciples before we actually learn to be disciples ourselves. Disciples who actually genuinely love others. Love cannot be reduced to telling someone a message, however good that message is. Love cannot be reduced to inviting people to a meeting, however good that meeting will be. Now, love means stepping into someone else's world to do them good. It involves showing them kindness. It involves opening yourself up to them. It involves loving them on their terms before loving them on your terms. So yes, please live your life to make others disciples of Jesus yes please think about how you can take opportunities to explain your hope as a believer when that opportunity arises but first and and I do mean first before that we must live out the greatest commandment of all to love people and this could look very different for different ones of us I, I imagine it will probably involve your job for many of you if you're in paid employment I think your job often would be the, the, the place that provides you with most opportunities to love others, both in terms of the work you're doing and the people you're doing it with. In most cases, uh, working hard at our jobs is a way of serving other people. And so working hard at our jobs is therefore an act of love. To love your neighbour means to do your job in this spirit of service. So it practically will probably involve your job. It will almost certainly involve your time. For me, with any of these things, I'm, I'm asking myself as I, as I survey this, this message even, look, how can I order my life? How can I balance my priorities and my time between people in my household, my church, and my friends outside the church? Actually, as I've got older, with this last group, I've often found myself asking, well, do I even have anyone who I could genuinely call friends outside the church? Or perhaps a better question would be, is there anyone outside the church who would genuinely still call me their friend, who I'm spending enough time with them that that could be the case? And I'm fully aware that this sort of balance is a challenge. You might be thinking, well, how can I give my time and energy to my household? I'm struggling just to do that. But also my church, Okay, yeah, fine, that as well. And friends outside the church who aren't Christians, well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, it will take two things, I think. It will mean being intentional about how we use our time. That's for sure. This won't happen by accident. And the thread that's been tying through all of these three messages comes up again. It will take sacrifice. It will mean not spending time on other things that you might like doing sometimes. Those things aren't expressions of love for others. They they drop down the pecking order. And that's tough. And that's why we need God's help. And that's also why we need the help of each other, which is, I guess, why we're putting on these discipleship groups as we seek to live out this high, high calling to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus comes to each of us this morning and he puts out his hand and he says, just like he did on the streets of Galilee all those years ago, follow me. And he says it to us, whether we've been to church a million times, whether this is the first time you've heard this message today and what he means to the same for each of us. And it's a live offer for each of us. And he's saying, follow me into a life of self-sacrificial love for others. As always, the pertinent question for us as we end is, what will we do with that invitation?